You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. American Theater's podcasts are kindly supported by theater acoustics and digital design consultancy Charcoal Blue. Hi, this is Deep Trance, senior editor of American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends—people who love theater so much that the Tonys are over, but we're still here. Like Elaine Stritch, we are never leaving this beat. It this art like, form. It sounds like we were nominated for Tonys, which we weren't. No, but I know, like, I, like the, there's a popular perception that after t- the Tony Awards, which is in the industry's biggest night, that, you know, oh, you're done. Everyone's done. We can just go on vacation. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, but no. No, we are still here. And at the end of the show, we will talk to you about the Tonys and what we thought about who won and who didn't. But first, let's talk about some shows we've seen. What have we seen, Jose? We went to see Octet, currently playing at the Signature Theater. We also saw Little Women at Primary Stages and Nomad Motel at Atlantic Theater. And then after we discuss those shows, we have a very exciting interview for you. We interviewed our very first politician, New York City public advocate Jamani Williams, because he's also an actor on the side. So we're going to talk to him about his current acting project. But first, let's talk about Octet. Octet is the new musical by Dave Malloy, who you might know for The Great Comet, basically. And did people, did enough people see Beardo? No, but enough people saw Ghost Quartet. Yes. I wish more people would have seen Beardo. But anyway, in Octet, eight people get together in a church basement to talk about their addiction. And their addiction, in this case, happens to be phones and screen time. Mm. There's people with Mm. addictions to dating apps, people who are obsessed with programming. Like, I never knew anyone could be obsessed with programming stuff. Right? And they talk about their problems, and they go around in a circle talking about their personal history of addiction, but it's a musical a cappella, and the harmonies that Dave Malloy created for this ensemble are just how does he do it? Gorgeous. I like I I have no I have no words for how gorgeous the music is. And the cast and, is also yeah. like really wonderful. Like we have one of my favorites, Margot Siebert. And, you know, that's my favorite. My, my favorite is Kim Blanc, who we saw last year in uh, Twelfth Night, the the musical. And she sang a song about about dating. And it's one of the most accurate representations of what it's like to be a woman on a dating app these days. And the interesting thing about what Dave Morloy does is, like, there's a lot of, like, choral influence. It, it doesn't sound like um, In Transit... This is kind of like people in the church basement singing. And so it's really gorgeous. And at the same time, and aside from like one moment where there was like some auto tuning happening, I feel like it, even though it was gorgeous, it kind of sounded kind of the same after a while. 
because there was it was just voices and it's limited to what these actors can do with their voices. No, that was not the case for me. Okay. I loved each of, I thought actually that each of the songs sounded so different from the mm-hmm. other. And but like tonally overall though. No, like, I I felt like even the songs sounded like they were different genres and they were like more hymn like hymn Jesus, I don't know how to say that word. Hymn hymn hymno, yeah. Jesus. Okay. Gospel music. Yeah, yeah. Uh and uh praise music and there was like country ting like songs and like that electronica and also dance yeah yeah that electronica number and also like pop songs i i actually felt that it was a very I, that's actually one of the things that i really admired about it because i was like i usually get really bored with like acapella stuff like glee oh. glee like, isn't actually acapella though. well but and like pentatonics and like all or those like, things god mm-hmm, bless them mm-hmm, like, pitch and, perfect yeah no well that i enjoy because it's like pop music and yeah yeah i enjoyed the the uh performers uh pitch perfect more than glee but i i yeah yeah i thought it was like uh a perfect like snapshot of how different these people were because each of the characters gets a different genre Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i wasn't bored by the tone it's so layered and so so genius. So there are some songs where it, it had like similar chord structures to songs in Natasha Pierre. Right. So like if you love the music in Natasha Pierre, like you'll love this, and that's one of the reasons why I would like the album of this because I want to. Because one of the things I love about Dave is it's not just like he knows how to lay down a good beat, but he like his lyrics, are, his ability to 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 put really complicated words into songs is is uncanny i think like maybe david yazbek is like the 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 other really smart songwriter musical theater songwriter working today david used song with words like punctuation or provocation in a song lyric and i'm just like who uses four syllable words in musical theater Dave Malloy. Dave Malloy. And talking about like really complex topics because the thing about this musical is like it's not it's not narrative driven. It's just like people in an AA meeting. So you're just going around and hearing to all of hearing all of their stories. And it gets a bit surreal at times. And I was wondering for you, Jose, like did you understand what was happening? Did I understand what was happening when? The God portion and how that played into the overall thematic tra- thematic territory that he was exploring because i'm still really confused about what that was all about it was about exploring faith and one of the things that i really love about dave malloy's work is that he i think sondheim to a certain degree does that where he's like exploring his own spiritual uh questions in his work because you know if you think about pierre in the great comet he was he was like what's the meaning of all this nonsense mm-hmm. and and it's like octet is basically eight pierres who have no idea what their lives are um about and where their lives are going and how can they use technology to to fit them better i loved that it's a musical about that about exploring what dave malloy thinks god is Oh, I don't actually think the musical is about that. I thought the musical was about our modern condition and how and how we find connection considering we're all on our phones all the time and we're addicted to them and how we find meaning considering like a tweet, you know, is 280 characters and it goes by so quickly and you and you're just trying to get more and more likes all the time, but what's it all for? 
And that's when a lot of people seek out spirituality. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, that last song was about that, about like these people trying to find God and like a sort, some sort of like God appearing to them. Like, I don't want to spoil it because even if it's not, it doesn't have a plot per se, the, the, it does build up to something that's really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I would like at least the MP3 of Margot Siebert's song about, uh, being doxxed on being publicly shamed on the internet because i feel like that should just be the theme of the world world that we're living in right now being shamed on the internet yeah by strangers oh yeah who are cowards but mm-hmm. also like he you know the book and the the music uh he uses elements from like taro and mm-hmm. from like all this other like yeah. uh, spiritual current so i love it like i'm a Can sucker ex- for anything having to do with spirituality like that's how you get me that's how you sell me on anything can we talk about the tarot cards because i think you talked you explained the tarot card that's used for the poster of the show really well and it and it really it it clarifies some of the themes of the show for me so can you explain it Oh, because they use it's such a cool poster. Because I also, FYI, dear listeners, I also do tarot readings. Have I? I've done tarot You've readings. You've never for you, done right? it on me. Because you've I, never asked me. Can you do me a tarot reading? Well, I don't have them on me right now, but sure. Yeah. But I've done them in, like around you. No, you haven't. Oh, really? No. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, remind I guess me next time. We haven't time. gotten drunk in front of each other. I don't drink when I'm doing tarot readings. Anyway. I, uh, yeah, I do tarot. I've, 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 you know, I got into tarot when I was like 16 and I've been doing it on and off for like, I guess since I was 16. So a whole, 16 whole years. four years. How dare you? <laughs> so the poster, if you, I hope if you're listening to this right now, you grab your phones, ironically, right? Uh, grab your phones or get to a screen and look at the poster and it's the tarot card. Uh, the first tarot card in the Rider Waite uh, deck, and it's the Fool. And it's this dude who's about to fall off a cliff. And I feel that the musical, and the, the, I don't know who designed this poster, but they're incredible. They're a genius. Like more Broadway, I mean, more theater marketing should be this smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, the dude is like about to fall off a cliff, but he's he's not, you know, he's there's a chance that he won't fall it's kind of like the fool in, in Lear. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool because it's what the characters are going through during the musical where they're like on, you know, about to lose themselves. But there's salvation. And that's like a theme also in The Great Comet where all these people are like desperate and, um, you know, but they still have a chance. They're not, it's not a hopeless musical. And also there's, well, the guy is carrying a phone, which uh, in the original card, he has a white rose, which white roses are the meaning of like purity. So the designer replacing purity with a phone is so telling because like phones are like the devil. Wait, and so what does the fool represent? The fool represents that. It represents, you know... Innocence? Approaching life with playfulness, but also watching out because you don't want to fall off a cliff and break your ass. Right. Because when I saw that poster for the first time, it just made me think of those people who look at their phones while they're crossing the street and they almost get run over. And it just makes me think, oh, like, we need to be looking at, we need to take our eyes off of our phones and see what's happening around us. Otherwise, we're going to lose touch with the rest of the world. Right. 
and also the uh, there's a the, the the tarot card has the number zero on top of the fool, and in the poster for octet there's the symbol of infinity, which is an eight turned sideways. So mm-hmm. it's you know it's the eight for octet, but in many uh, spiritual beliefs, the number eight is like the most sacred number because. The number seven, Jesus, now I sound like Miss Cleo. Yeah. But the number seven represents perfection. You know, like how many people, seven is their lucky number? No. You've never heard like lucky number seven? No. Like, I, and I, I know Beyonce's lucky number is four. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, the, uh, the seven represents, you know, perfection and like, and christianity for instance the world was created in seven days Mm -hmm. and like if you see other religions from all over the world the seven there's usually like seven you know deities in like this religion and seven stages of something in the other the seven has been a number that's always mystified uh humanity and the eight however is precisely what the musical is about is when you take that extra step and you don't know what's coming. So the eight is like, I mean, you're not, you're, you're a non-believer, but if you believed the seven is like what we can see mm-hmm. and the eight is what we can comprehend, but it's out there. So the final song in the musical. So that's why I love this musical. It's so cool. It has so many layers. Oh my God. I need to go see this again. Yes. When does it, when does it close? Uh, Octet closes on June 30th. It's already been extended three times, so hopefully it'll extend again or it'll move to a bigger venue. But prices are now $95, so, you know, run, don't walk, and listen to this podcast and tell all your friends about what the tarot cards mean, and then they'll get so much more out of this musical. Next up, Little Women at Primary Stages at the Cherry Orchard. Wait, Cherry Cherry Lane. Lane. Damn you, Shekhov. At the Cherry Lane Theater is um, Kate Hamill's take on the famous novel by Louisa May Alcott. Have you ever read Little Women? No. Not even when you were in elementary school? No. God bless your English teacher then. Because I feel like they make every child read that book. Yeah, I feel like I was the only teenage girl who didn't read Little Women. Was this your first Little Women? Yeah. But you know Little Women. I just think I just think because like Winona Ryder was in the movie. You're like the first woman I've ever met who's never read Little Women. I know. I think I think I was more of like an, a Jane Austen and Bronte person. So, yeah, that's why. If you don't know, Kate Hamill does a lot of uh, literary adaptations. So she's done Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Vanity Fair, which is the one I've seen, which is incredible. And uh, I think she's working her way through all the Jane Austens. She should. Yeah. She's so good. And, well, anyway, in her take on Little Women, she kind of, like, does a summary of the book, which is very... The book is very dated. It's a really good book, but it's very dated. And Kate Hamill instead chooses to concentrate on the reasons why, you know... I hope English teachers see this show, because the show shows them why they're still forcing Little Women on kids. Not only because, you know, like the show explains why it's in the canon. So what Kate Hamill's adaptation does is that it uncovers how the March sisters relate to the world that we're living in today. 
And rather than just like doing, because usually like all the adaptations of Little Women are very bland and very, even the Winona Ryder one, it's like really exquisitely done, but it's so bland. And this one felt so revolutionary and so exciting. And just the fact that she chooses to end her play at a different moment than Mm -hmm. the ending in the book, it's just like mind-blowing because she concentrates her efforts in showing how this little women are not so little. They're freaking kick-ass women who are just trying to tell their story. And it reminded me a lot of Hamilton because you see women from uh, different uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds playing the March sisters. And it's this like need to tell their story. Like it's what drives all of them. I expected to like it more than I actually did. I, I actually disagree with you on like the it ending early, like clarified what the revolutionized what the book is about. Because I actually found that there were still some unresolved tensions and unresolved ambitions from it being truncated. And the ending wants us to focus on the character of Beth and her influence on the family and how, you know, the tiniest voice can sometimes have, have like the biggest impact and how she kept everyone together. I don't think it earned that. And, and it focused so much on Joe at the expense of her other sisters that I felt Joe's story wasn't finished. But yeah, but Joe's like the central character. Yeah, yeah. But they wanted it to be also about Beth, too. At the end of the day, like I wasn't satisfied with either of the, of the treatment of those characters. I think it was, for me, it was not necessarily about Beth, but it, it was about Joe, because Joe's a writer. And yeah, yeah. Beth is kind of like the saintly, like the conscience of the family is what they call her. Mm-hmm. So for me, it wasn't that they were like splitting like the attention, but they were showing why it was so important for Joe to grow up to tell these stories. Except she doesn't grow up. Because the because it ends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It ends before she can grow up. And so I feel like it doesn't... Her story isn't finished. But that's the book also. Well, it, it ends with her actually becoming a writer. She doesn't become a writer in this version. But she, yeah, she gets her stories published. She gets one story published, and then she tries to get it published again, and it doesn't happen. So you wanted to see her, like, all the way to completion, like, to be... Yes. I love this tension, though. Like, I, oh. I, I love that. that you like you the unresolvedness of it? Yeah, because I, right. I don't think... I don't think theater should solve things. Like, I appreciate when a show sends me home asking stuff about the world rather than oh everything's because when i think when a show like ties everything up with like little perfect knots it's just like the audience feels relaxed and it's like everyone's like patting themselves on the back and i love when shows don't do that because then everyone goes home going like what the fuck so do you not like the original then do you think it's too pat well i mean because it's it's a it's a product of the 19th century so it's dated and you know it's a it's a good book and in the context of the time when it came out it was super revolutionary but i appreciate all the layers that kate hamill's adaptation uncovers precisely because she doesn't follow it you know like step by step like mm-hmm. every other adaptation does i i think it would have been better for me if they focused if there's like equal time on all of the sisters, kind of like in Pride and Prejudice, 
where yes you have Elizabeth Bennett but everyone else is fully drawn like I think one, like one of the best scenes in the in the production for me the Kate Hamill production of Little Women was uh, Meg uh, Kate Hamill plays Meg and then there's a scene where she's a new mother and she's really stressed out and she just talks about how it wasn't what she thought it was going to be and I feel like that was the moment where I was in in it because like it was uncovering just like the bullshit like how everything women are told to be is kind of bullshit but in a very understated way it didn't like hit you over the head with it and I feel like Joe's character is just so anachronistic and too modern for like the time she was in that it kind of was like a blunt object telling me women don't have to be like this women should be able to wear pants and i think i it could have been more subtle in that way but that's the character like that's really yeah jesus that's like you should go do your research because uh, that's the character that's joe that's joe yeah we should you be know, able to say the, on its own though the tomboy yeah but i mean it's you're not gonna like turn joe you know what i'm saying like you're not gonna like do pride and prejudice and then like have elizabeth bennett be like not like spunky or like you can't change the essence no i'm not saying that she shouldn't be a tomboy i'm saying like the things that were coming out of her mouth about like if i was a man publishing it would be no there would be no issues i'm like i don't need you to actually say that to me i understand the subtext of it but most of the time it was just overt text rather than subtext okay okay yeah i love crystalline lloyd's performance i know she was she was she was fantastic but i yeah. yeah We're going to disagree on this one as well. Yeah, but it's okay. Yeah, I don't have a problem with disagreeing. Yeah, and if you see Little Women, tell us what you think or how it could be, you know, what what your adaptation would contain. Uh, Little Women is playing until June 29th, and tickets are $82 to $152. Uh, the final show we're going to be talking about today is Nomad Motel by Carla Ching, currently playing at Atlantic Theatre Company's uh, second stage. In Nomad Motel, we meet two teenagers. Alex, who is a poor white girl who's, whose family was recently evicted from their house and they have to live in motels. And she, and she also has to work part-time, and so she's having trouble keeping up with her schoolwork. And we also meet Mason, who is from Hong Kong, and he's studying in the United States, and his parents sent him over here, over to California by himself. So he, he lives in this big house all alone. And so these two very lonely characters... They get paired together in a class project and they become friends and, you know, in a rebel without a cause style, help each other find meaning in their very drab and really sad lives. I have to say, okay, the, the, and I'm, I'm going to sound really shallow for one second. Christopher Larkin, he's in the 100. I haven't seen the show, but now I kind of want to see the show because the character of Mason really didn't grab me as much as the character of Alex, but because Christopher is playing him and his face is just so expressive. Like, he has one of those faces and postures that just makes you want to hug him and makes you want to empathize with him that it got me committed to this character who on paper wasn't actually that compelling because when you're putting a really privileged character which mason is next to a character who is really who is homeless like the empathy gap is uh like you're stacking the deck 
And cause, so Christopher did most of the heavy lifting for me in that end. And I, I actually found parts of this play really beautiful. Like the fact that they were living in California and Anaheim, actually where I grew up, which is next to Disneyland. And so they're all, and so these really bereft characters are growing up near the happiest place on earth, but they're not happy. Like the whole theme of that is just so such a good, it's a, it's a juicy, juicy thing for people to realize right now that with all this capitalism and wealth, there's just still so much inequality. And so I loved the idea of that. And I also love the idea of having a teenage story that was unlike any teenage story we've seen because, you know, we, I grew up with Rebel Without Cause and Catcher in the Rye and, and Saved by the Bell, like these teen, these teen stories about like rich white kids. And the thing is, like, growing up in California, like, I grew up next to, like, a lot of, like, Asian kids and and Latinos, and none of us had money. <laughs> and so, like, having something that was similar to my lived experience, or, like, similar to the people who I grew up near, like, that was really refreshing. Like, we need different kinds of teenagers on stage. I just really wish the play overall was... I just I just wish the play play over all like cohered into something more than this is a tale about these two teenagers. What did you think? You were talking before about all text and no subtext, and mm -hmm. Nomad Motel was too much text for me. I feel like I have seen this story a million times, in fact. And have you have you seen have you watched the Florida Project? Not yet. Okay, because that's you know that contrast that you're talking about Disneyland uh, and Anaheim is in the Florida project also, except it's a little girl in that one. And I, I, you know, everyone in this show felt like, like they were like the playwright was trying too hard to make mm -hmm. them like, you likeable? know, sim not even likable, but like symbols. Cause you said that Mason is privileged, but also uh, remember that he's, almost living in poverty because his dad who's some sort of like crime like gangster type mm -hmm. in hong kong if his dad doesn't send him money then he can't eat literally like he mm -hmm. gets his power cut off so you know it i wouldn't call that privilege necessarily relatively though i mean next to someone who's homeless he well i, I don't know because he also uh it reaches also that point where he has like really bad, like social anxiety and he's also mm -hmm. undocumented. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't see that much privilege in, in Mason, but I also thought that the show, the play was just like exploiting this like poverty porn where everyone's like suffering all the time. Everyone was like a cliche for me. Mm. Even the guy, there's a, there's a, a black actor who plays, uh, a guy Oscar. who was dating uh, Alex. And even that character is like a very, you know, stereotypical take on what a black man is. Where he's mm -hmm. like always like confrontational, like trying to pick up, pick fights. And yeah, I didn't, homeless. I didn't like this play at all. See, I'd, I'd like to see, and I liked individual scenes because the actors were just so good. I think that they sold these characters for me. Like, 
I don't think they were stere- stereotypes. I think like they were very sympathetic portrayals of people in these circumstances. I just didn't see like at the end like what the point of it was. Like these people are suffering, and then they're, now they're going to continue to to suffer. Yeah, poverty porn. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also did not like uh, the uh, direction by Ed uh, Sylvanus Iskandar because the space where the thing takes place, it's so confusing. Like, oh, I wasn't confused. The blocking, well, for me, the blocking was like, what's happening? And, you know, that final scene that I won't spoil for you, but you saw it and you remember what happens, mm-hmm. that was so cliche when they like break free. It, it reminded me of the end of of the end of the graduate, where you think it's gonna they're gonna be okay, but then you realize, but you see like on their faces, like oh shit, we're scared. What the fuck is gonna happen? Yeah, it was like borrowed directly from the the graduate, but mm-hmm. I yeah, I don't I don't know. I didn't like anything about this play. Dang, that's harsh. I mean, it's not. Yeah, you didn't even like Chris. He was so cute. No, I mean the actors were all good. Like, yeah, with, but the material was so poor, and the direction was so misguided. Like the tone was off for me at all times, and the blocking was so confusing. And I knew that. I mean, I know what I knew what the spaces were supposed to be, but how the actors moved in the space was so weird. Like when he had like actors sitting, and then like other actors like next to them running, and it was just I don't know. I think. Uh, Maybe uh, I would have loved to see perhaps what our director did with it. Yeah, I actually I actually like that it wasn't like a literal like hotel room or literal like mansion. It was like figurative space, which made it like seem a little bit more poetic because of mu- the, like music such a big theme in this, and music most most of music is poetry. Oh, the music was good. Who wrote the music? But also there was that whole thing about that uh, that bird that mason finds and he's trying to like yeah i'm like no like it's like cliche after cliche yeah i think i think maybe if she didn't have the bird in there it would have been more elegant like like the bird is just uh you're you're hanging people over the head with the metaphor here (laughs) yeah do you think teenagers would like this show i think so I think they would relate to the fact that feeling like no one understands you, no one understands what you're going through, and just like, and also like the awkwardness of not knowing how to talk to people. Well, if you're a teenager yeah. and you go see it, let me know what you thought because I'm yeah. an adult and I did not like it. All right, we'll agree. We'll also agree to disagree on that one. Oh my, that's a great thing about having a discussion, though. It's not just any one opinion. Uh, but Nobody Motel is playing until June 23rd and tickets are 41 to $56. Um, so you, do you want to intro? Jumani. Yes. I still don't know how to call him because he's so cool and he's like one of the most amazing politicians out there, even though he tells us in an interview that he doesn't think of himself as a politician. But anyway, we went to City Hall to talk to public advocate. That's his title, right? Yeah, public yeah. advocate. Yeah, to public advocate Jumani Williams about his work for the government and for the city of New York, but also his work in Theater of Wars, Antigone in Ferguson, which played in New York last year. It's played also in Ferguson. Yes. And it's back. 
running in Brooklyn through July 13th. So stop listening to me and go listen to what Jumani had to say. I feel so cool calling him Jumani. I feel like mm. we're friends. Hi, Jumani. Uh, subscribe to our podcast, Jumani. <laughs> okay. And now a word from our sponsor. What makes the perfect performance venue? Comfortable seats, great views of the stage, a line for the toilet that doesn't take you out onto the sidewalk. I've encountered that way too many times, and that is why I no longer drink before shows. But in truth, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge. But Charcoal Blue, that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad, over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new Performing Arts Center at the World's Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals innovate at any scale and any budget. Huh, I wonder if I can get them to design a studio for Token Theater Friends. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them at Twitter or Instagram at charcoalblue. I'm not so nervous to meet you. Like, Why? I don't know. Oh, no. Very, very important. Like, how do I have, I have like all these questions? Like, do I have, how do I address him? Like, His Excellency. His Excellency. Like, no. sir? Jelani works, public advocate works, PA works, anything. I'm just gonna call you Mr. Williams because sure. <laughs> you're so cool. Thank, oh, you. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. For the people who haven't had a chance to see uh, Antigone and Ferguson, can you tell them a little bit about what it's about? Uh, well, Antigone Ferguson, first of all, you should see it. I think there's maybe six weeks left, five weeks left. Yeah. Um, you gotta come out. It's an amazing cast. Uh, Brian Dorhees, who, uh, who began Theater of War had this idea of using theater to tell a story and elicit feedback from communities, really to try to deal with the trauma of violence. Sometimes uh, it's violence in streets, sometimes it's violence in war, veterans, and I've been working with him for, for a while now. And Antigone Ferguson is a, started after um, Michael Brown was, was, was killed. Um, and it's an amazing choir made up of uh, some of Michael Brown's teachers, some police officers who are on, uh, on the force in St. Louis, uh, and people from New York City, uh, police officers from New York City, people from New York City, and they have guest uh, choirs from churches every uh, every week. And every week there's a, a cast of changing uh, celebrities, and there's one woman playing Antigone, uh, who you should just come, even if it's just for a long, she's going to be a star at some point. And uh, she came in an audition for the courts, and they, they made her the lead. Uh, and... I've had the opportunity, thanks to Brian, which is amazing, combining two of my loves, um, you know, civics and politics and acting. My first love is, is theater. My first love is acting. I have Tourette's syndrome, and, and when I'm acting, it kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great place and a great space for me to be. When you enrolled in, in Brooklyn College, you were going to be a theater major. And what was the moment when, when we lost you to college? <laughs> yeah. And how can we get you back? So my first love, all throughout, uh, I went to home school of the arts as well, and I did a lot of art stuff. And, I think it was my way for my mom to try to uh, keep me out of trouble. 
it, it mostly worked. I did find a little bit of trouble. Um, but um, theater was was always the thing I wanted to do, acting. Um, and I went in to do theater. And actually, the auditions I was going on at that time were always for, like, murderers and drug dealers. And I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I'm going to make my own stories. And I actually switched to film production. Oh. Then I got involved with uh, politics on the campus. You know, social justice was always a big thing for me. My heroes were X-Men, Spider-Man, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. They were all kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing how important electoral politics is. And I just naturally gravitated to all the... At that time, Brooklyn College was teeming with political activity. We had two different parties. Everybody was getting involved. And so I got involved there. And I actually ended up minoring in film production and majoring in political science. And after that, I started working for nonprofits. And slowly, uh, you know, civics and the politics kind of overrode the, the theater and the acting. But it's something that's within me. And uh, my therapist has suggested that I don't give it up. And so I always <laughs> try to find wise ways to get involved. Theater of all was interesting. Um, uh, Linda, the president of the Brooklyn Public Library, came to me one day and said they, they're working with it. Well, I did a lot of work around violence. And they wanted me to be a panelist on it. And I said, you know, I'm an actor also. For some reason, she believed me. (laughs) For another reason, Brian believed me. I don't know why. Uh, Next thing you know, I'm working with um, some amazing people. Um, Jeffrey Wright, Paul Giamatti. Uh, That day, it was Ashanti as well. Mm -hmm. And I came in, and since then, uh, I've been uh, doing this with uh, Brian. It's it's been amazing. It's it's almost a therapy for me. Antigone Ferguson started in Ferguson. That's where they performed. And the both of us have seen it. We saw it last year when it was in Harlem. And... Mm. The second component of the evening after at the Antigone reading in which you play Haman, yeah. uh, there, there's, a, in, there's a community discussion. Absolutely. And like in, in the time you've done it, like what's been the most memorable interactions between... Did you see me when I was there? No. Oh, I, I would. They, they don't tell us ahead of time who's doing it. We're going to... I'm going to do... I did I did the first opening. Uh, I'm thinking we're trying to find some more dates for me to come in. Do it. Um, I always find... There's always something new that comes up. Um, it, it's very interesting when people start sharing their own stories. Mm-hmm. The, so the, the most interesting actually one, there was a gentleman. So everybody who... Um, started speaking, started talking about what they saw in Antigone, who happened to be playing by, just happened to be playing by, by a black woman. So it made the tension even more uh, profound, I think, for the time we're in. So everybody started talking about the, the powers of privilege and, uh, and race. And there was a man who was from Paris. He said, I think I saw a completely different play. Um, he understood the power dynamic between the king, but he didn't see the race relation part. He didn't see some of the things that we kind of see, I think, one, because we're in America at this time, and we have a different experience. So we just just reaffirmed that. I always try to remember, I never know what journey someone took to get them where they are. So I always mm-hmm. try to receive that when I have a conversation. And that kind of reinforced it to me, because he came from another country, had a different experience. And because of that, just had uh, saw something else that many folks didn't. Your, your parents uh, came to the States from Granada. And, and I wondered, and you were born in, in New York, and I wondered what your cultural upbringing was like that... Did your parents try to uh, keep aspects of uh, Grenadian culture when you were when you were little? Oh yeah, I'm very I'm, um, I love my Grenadian heritage. Uh, Maurice Bishop, um, Malcolm X's mother is from Grenada, so mm-hmm. it's a, a, a very big uh, source of pride. Um, but yeah, I was you know I wasn't that very good in school, and so up until I had to start going to summer school, high school, I was going to uh, Grenada every single year, hanging out with my grandma, hanging out. Uh, 
with the animals and and that, that she she had she had sheep and, and chicken would get fresh eggs it was mm-hmm. it was very cool i didn't realize how much how rich that experience was until he got older and started looking back um so it was just a great experience to be able to go there um and it's just, it's been you know the music i was playing every saturday uh, soca and calypso uh so we were very immersed in the Grenadian is a, is a kind of tight-knit community, so we immerse in the Grenadian community, and then a larger uh, Caribbean community as a whole. But it's an interesting dynamic, I think, that many of us who have Caribbean parents, Caribbean-American versus Black-American. So while I was, I was just always so proud of my Caribbean heritage, I would always just check Black. Um, I identified with the Black-American experience as well. And I think it's a dichotomy that uh, folks had to struggle with, because I had no problem saying Caribbean and Caribbean-American, just what naturally just came off black and uh, thankfully my uh, both my my parents my, uh, my father left uh my, when when i was about nine so it was mostly my mom although he was in north carolina but they really pushed uh me to understand the civil rights movement here and what the black american experience was so um i, I always identify with that so you were talking about how like you you veered from theater because like you wanted to do more social justice work and you wanted to make change in the world and I think now a lot of theater artists, especially theater artists from marginalized backgrounds, like want to incorporate that yeah. work into the art form. And so how, how, how do you think like theater or like the per- per- performing arts can better engage with these I blew it. Issues? And I should have just stuck with the theater and I mean, everything would have came full circle. Uh, um, I think the arts very often are, uh, if not in the forefront, just are very much in tune uh, with social justice issues. They just, I think by virtue of who artists are, they're, they're just very much more accepting of human beings in general. And so when human beings are, are suffering, they tend to uh, gravitate to supporting that. Uh, but the one thing you should remember, obviously, and folks uh, always need people to be, to, to, to lend their voice, but you always want to make sure you lend the voice without adopting and making sure the people on the ground are the ones who are leading. But mm-hmm. um, I think folks are doing a, a decent job of really pushing issues in spaces that people might not have entree to. The best thing that, you know, artists can do is use their, their voice, use their celebrity, whatever they have, to get the message into a space that someone who's on the ground just won't be able to do. Besides, like, all the uh, public speaking and all that, you know, like having to dress up and doing things like this, uh, I, I remember an interview where you, someone asked you something about your ideal budget, and you were like, there's no such thing. Like, we're always going to need more money. And that made me think about theater also, because the greatest <laughs> shows are the ones that are not funded by anyone. Yeah. And, and I wonder if, you know, besides things like that, besides the obvious, you know, like public appearances and all that, have you, have you found any other uh, parallels in politics and theater that may, maybe uh, make you think that you're doing theater every day? Yeah, I, I often say um, uh, same game, different stages sometimes. <laughs> uh, the, my work in theater, I think, has been immensely helpful in just being able to speak to people, speak to large audiences of people, be comfortable on stage, and being able to work the stage to make sure that my energy is uh, given and received to, to everyone who's there in a way that a lot of people just haven't had the experience. I get nervous before every time I speak and before every show, to uh, my palm this way. But once I can get in it, I, I think it's good. And those uh, skill set have been very transferable. How can we all get you to talk about arts funding or advocate for more arts funding? Um, I'm happy to do that. There, there are two things I have to do more, I think. 
Uh, one is talk about arts and what, what it meant for me in my life. And, and one, another is to talk about my Tourette's, uh, which I don't talk about as often, because mm-hmm. I don't want to. It's just not something uh, I think about as much. But whenever I'm invited and asked, uh, I come out and support both. But, uh, you know, particularly education. There's a tendency to think that art is something that can be taken away mm-hmm. uh, and put back. And it's not. Uh, is it a central part of education? So you know, I try to make sure when people are talking about STEM, I talk about STEAM so that we can keep arts back. And it's just as important, I think, as, as a science, technology, uh, mathematics, uh, all of that. You have to have art. So whenever I can, I actually interject it and, and try to tell my story of what, what it meant to me. Now that you're more tempted to go back to do more stage at some point, what are some of your dream roles? I'm not sure. So I actually had, um, I, I love theater, but then I really, really loved film. I like the way, what you can do with film. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if, if I happen to do it in while I'm a public advocate, I think film TV might be easy because it's less rehearsal. Um, but, um, you know, with theater of war, like I'm just, I just love being up there. I'm not sure what the dream roles are. I just know, I just like telling stories. It's just amazing to get away for a second mm-hmm. and go into a whole nother world mm-hmm. and convey that to a bunch of people who are going to share that experience with you. I, I just, it's, uh, I, I'm, in a, I'm in another place, in a Zen place with that. So I, I you know, I, I take whatever comes. <laughs> I yeah. think, I think there's probably I have to just be careful that there's, there's no role that's going to kind of be used against me, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. But for most, for most roles, you know, I. I I think I'm I'm good, man. I'm just I'm just happy to be in it. I'm happy I can find some space to do what I truly love. You know, I ran for lieutenant governor and I lost. And my plan actually at that point wasn't to do politics again. I was going to take another another run at at uh, theater, and that was my actual plan. And this is the first time in my life I've ever felt drafted. Uh, <laughs> and I said, you know what, uh, public advocate is something that also is like a, a dream job. So. Uh, let's take a shot. Let's do it. So I'm here. Well, I guess I guess after you're done with this job, then maybe you can go audition <laughs> for Hamilton. Oh man, <laughs> that that is a that's another another dream show there. Like yeah, Hamilton is amazing. Um, I actually haven't seen it yet. Uh, what? Seen what? It. You can't last... just call some favors. Oh, no favors. <laughs> um, the last show I saw actually was To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh. I want to shout out my friend Benga, Benga Akinebe, mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, who's in that show and just did an amazing job. Um, and uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to see next, but we gotta, we got to continue our Broadway tour. Well, we talk a lot about making theater accessible to yeah. people, and I think money is a part of it. It's a huge, huge issue. I do salute. I, I think Hamilton... They, I remember them actually trying to, to make sure there were tickets available at low amounts, but then people started scalping those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they said if they're going to be scalped, they might as well make the money. So I, I do salute them for trying to do that, but we do have to find a better way uh, to make uh, the arts accessible. Yeah, I was just thinking all morning long while I was preparing to meet you, that I was more nervous about meeting you than meeting movie stars and meeting... Uh, really? Yeah, and meeting like Broadway <laughs> people. And, and I wonder what's it like for you, because we're living at a time when, you know, the good politicians are becoming like stars and people like go crazy. Like I would, you know, like I would like cancel any Broadway show if someone was like, you can go meet Alexandra. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, bye, Audra McDonald. <laughs> AOC is a rock star. Mm. Uh, but just with her at the Puerto Rican Day Parade, she's, uh, she's amazing. I'm so proud of what she represents and what she's doing, what she represents. And if someone can get in that spotlight, and not perform. She's performing on, on A-game. And I always kind of gauge elected officials on three things. 
how many bills are you getting passed? How much money are you bring back to the to the district? And what issues are you able to uplift? And in that congressional position, you know, being in a minority, it's hard to get bills passed. Uh, not impossible, but it's hard. They don't have any discretionary funds, but you do have the ability to raise your voice and attach it to issues. And she's just doing an awesome job with that. But um, it's weird for me. Um, I'm just now trying to think about how people may see me in the office. Mm-hmm. But that's why it's weird to hear. I appreciate it. But, you know, I'm just me. So I don't. <laughs> it, it's kind of cool. Folks want to take pictures. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a day when nobody wants to take pictures. So you try your best to enjoy it. But I, I've, one, I've, I, I try not to believe my own press releases. <laughs> uh, don't and, read the tweets. Yeah. And then, two, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm here. Whatever position I'm in, temporarily, I prefer to I call myself an elected official as opposed to a politician, and take this the work I have to do seriously without taking myself too seriously. Like you know, just everybody in these positions, relax. Like we have a job to do, we're honored, but the position we hold is not more important than the people we represent. And I just always try to keep that. Come on. Well, you're doing amazing, and thank oh, you. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. With all your your incredible office. Even when I was at the city council, every time I walked up those steps, I, I like I'm in awe. So I'm here. <laughs> yeah. People are actually, this is. I was about to curse her. But uh, oh, oh yeah, I'm like this shit is crazy. But, like yeah. I'm walking up steps in the city council. People, I'm a councilman. That's like dope. And now I'm over here. Who would imagine I'm being citywide elected official? One of three. I'm the. I, I think I'm actually the youngest elected. That's the research in that. It's quite possible uh, that I was the youngest elected citywide. I'm the fourth black elected ever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's freaking crazy. Yeah. So you know, I'm still it's still very humbling for me. I try to try to remember how how much of an honor it is, and that people entrusted me with this. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you very much. We'd like yeah. to invite our viewers to go see Antigone. Oh, please come out to see Antigone in in Ferguson. Whether I'm there or not there, uh, you got to come out. It's in a it's an amazing time. The presentation is phenomenal. You're not even. I think most people come in ex- not knowing what to expect and walk out just a wonderful experience. And then the discussion, uh, Brian will remind you, is always the most important. Uh, and any directors out there, reach out to me. of you could have seen the hat collection in Jumani Williams' office. It was so cool. And he doesn't wear baseball caps, but he just has like a row of baseball caps in his office, including one that said taco truck on every corner. Amen. Well, we love you, Jumani. Thank you for your work. You are an inspiration. And we hope to see you on stage again someday. Yes. Speaking of stages, how are we feeling about the Tony Awards? Eh. Did you have a good time? I mean, it was fine. Everyone who was predicted to win won. It was, I think, the most boring um, ceremony that I've ever seen. Like, everything 
Well, I mean, the Hamilton one is also pretty boring. But it was... Because everything was, you know, like, everything went as planned. There was not a single surprise. Really? I, I was surprised when Oklahoma won because I was surprised that the Tony voter would give it to a really controversial version of that musical, considering it hadn't won, won any other competitive award this season. But it was the industry award, and the critics, who are apparently even older than the Tony voters were the ones who gave out all the previous awards that Oklahoma won zero off. So I was, I mean, it was, everyone was predicting it to win because Kiss Me Kate winning would have been, like, that would have been, like, crazy. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I I knew, I guess, it was going to win. I hoped it was going to win. It was still, like, nice that, you know, the industry had more vision for the future than the critics in this case. Yeah. And, well, and, and I was at the Tony Awards, and I, well, I wasn't at in the auditorium. I was backstage in the press room. But, and, and then I wrote up, you know, my take on what it all meant, and I feel like it was it, it was a really interesting night like all i like so I, I don't always remember speeches but i feel like this year's speeches were like a lot of like advocacy based speeches like um rachel chafkin calling for the for the industry to hire like more diverse people who exist and it's not a pipeline problem it's a failure of the industry to not do that or Sergio Trujillo the choreographer for Ain't Too Proud saying that he was he was undocumented and this award shows that you know hope is real the American dream is alive as he said it's such a shame that those mm-hmm. awards weren't televised yeah that was really fucked up we saw thought we all saw them backstage actually so, you all should have seen it. Their speeches are really great. Yeah, Sergio Trujillo's speech was really wonderful. Oh, you, you see on YouTube. And also the sound design for Hades Town, because it was the first women right to win the mm-hmm, sound design. Someone, someone sound design. Insane. I know. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, and like the first actor in a wheelchair won an acting Tony. You know, Hades Town's the first musical written and directed by women to win a Tony. And so it's just like we're still having first and so since well since it happened and people were calling out the broadway's lack of diversity and risk-taking like do you think it'll make it'll have an effect on future seasons i mean i don't know remember what happened when hamilton the hamilton season and it was hamilton and shuffle along and everyone said broadway is finally you know diverse and then the next year it was like the widest season of all time so i think the problem is when the industry becomes very complacent and they think that they have checked the race box or whatever or the gender box and then they move on mm-hmm. and keep voting for the same crap that they vote for because i mean andrea shields for instance was the only person of color to an acting award that is true yes and there weren't very many people of color acting this season, so that didn't help either. Yeah, and that's really depressing. And, you, you know, like the the category of uh, best uh, actress in a play, it was all white women because there was only one woman of color who had a lead in a Broadway play this season, well, last season. Yeah. And that's really depressing. And Carrie, Wa- and that was Carrie Washington. Amazing she didn't get nominated, though. Yeah, I was surprised. But uh, 
I guess they weren't like into like the TV star thing yeah. this time around. But I wouldn't, well, except for Brian Cranston, who won I, his second yeah. Tony Award. God bless Brian Cranston, but I am not a fan. He was fine. He's he has a thing he does it well, which is being really emotional on stage. Being a ham. Yes. But no, no, what I found interesting about this year is like a lot of people like explicitly saying this isn't enough. Like what we're doing right now isn't enough. I feel, you know, it's kind of like AA where like the first step to admitting to solving the problem is admitting you have a problem. And I feel like for the Hamilton year, everyone was saying, yes, we are here. We're doing great. And this year, a lot of people were saying we aren't there yet. And so did you find that to be some kind of progress? Not really, because I've seen... I mean, you work in this industry and you know how they love meetings and they love conferences and they love seminars about diversity and then nothing happens. Yeah. So, I mean, talk is cheap. I want to see all these people, you know, walk the walk. Yeah. And here, here's a funny story. Um, I was, you know, how Brian Cranston won the acting Tony and he... And and his and he begins his speech with finally oh straight white man gets a break which is not funny <laughs> and it it was a joke but it was not funny and then backstage in a press room I asked him so since you were talking about being a straight white man and we're talking about diversity tonight a lot does that inspire you to pick more diverse collaborators because so far the things you've won for have been plays directed and and written by white men. And then he basically gave me an answer about how producers need to be take more risk, and there's a lot more risk taking in off Broadway spaces. Well, that's not an answer. That is not an answer, but it get it shows you that people don't realize how much power they have. Like stars don't realize that you have the power to green light projects, and so. Carrie Russell should not be in that terrible play, burn this play by a white dude. Like, she should be in a play written by a woman. Or it should be in a play where, like, there's an empower, the women are actual people instead of, like, ciphers for, like, male, you know, feelings. But I think we are often too hard on, you know, not only women, but the people we should be harder on men. Oh, yeah, we should yeah, be harder on Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston should be paying better projects. Yes. And Jeff Daniels and Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. Because he chose to be in a play where he basically like assaults people. Yeah. Uh, not that. I mean, I don't. I also like. I don't subscribe to this whole new thing. This narrative that it's not okay to see. You know, bad characters on stage. Like, no, no. It's, we should see. Yeah. We should see. Yeah. Yeah. We should see people who do bad things, and I'm okay with that. But also, like, you know, like, you're, if you're a Star Wars suitor, if you have like a hundred Emmys be- for Breaking Bad and you already have a Tony, yeah, like maybe stay home and say, hey, why don't you give this part to, to a woman of color or something radical? Like, it's men are not doing anything. Yeah. Or picking better place to be in. They want yes. the prestigious, like the easy. They don't stuff. need it. They don't need it. Like, like he, like Adam Driver could have picked like Octoroon by Brand Jacob Jenkins and played a bad white man in it because there are there is that character in that play, but instead he chose he chose like the safest thing to do. So, which is like a, a play from the eighties that's already been tested on Broadway. It's so, like you don't need it. You don't need 
to do a revival like as a star you can do new exciting work like nathan lane did gary which no one expected nathan lane to do, to do like an experimental play but he did and i respect him for it and more people should be taking risk or look at jennifer lawrence even if she's not on stage she she and scott wooden got lila yeah to direct the movie and that's yeah. the kind of thing that you know more people should be doing especially the white men instead of making all those jokes but wait we're being cranky was there anything you loved about the tonys yes hades town hades town won and rachel chafkin director rachel chafkin finally got to win a tony and gave an amazing speech about the industry isn't doing the industry needs to do better and andre the shields won and i discovered he follows me on twitter and that, and that, it's like the happiest day of my life my favorite moments were uh, one that unfortunately again we were denied the opportunity to see it on TV but Bob Mackie winning the best costume design in a musical award was so precious like last weekend at the Drama Desk Awards he also won and I was very disappointed that the Drama Desk Awards were not streamed or the speeches you know shown anywhere because Bob Mackie gave the most beautiful speech he basically got on stage and he's like a fucking legend and he got on stage and he said when i was little i told my uncle that i wanted to be a costume designer on broadway and he rolled his eyes all the way to the back of his head and then he lifted his award and he said look at me now and i was like yeah it was so precious and i also i am so happy to be living in a world where stephanie j block has a tony award for best actress in a musical yeah i'm happy to be living in a world where ali stoker has a award for best supporting actor in a musical so you know two steps forward one step back that's the nature of the industry right at least the parties were fun. At least the parties were fun, and the performances were good overall. Oh, that choir boy performance oh, was so spectacular! Performance. I hope people see that because that's the great thing about the Tonys. Like mm-hmm. sometimes people see those performances, and then maybe they're inspired. Yeah, and maybe like regional theaters are going to start doing choir boy. Oh, they they've they've been doing choir boy. It's fine. It's fine. Jer- I want you all to know that Jeremy Pope is a heartthrob. And he should be leading your movies or plays. Just put him in everything because he is adorable and talented. Since the last time we talked, have you learned how to cope better with your favorites not winning the awards? Nope. <laughs> but you know what happened, though? My favorite, what the Constitution means to me, did not win best play. But it's okay because I went to their after party and drank heavily. So that made it bet and told Heidi personally that i was very upset but and she do, appreciated it but what do you think it means for the industry not for your drinking habits because <laughs> you haven't seen the ferryman right no i didn't get an invite and i kind of i feel like i should at least read the script for it but from what i heard it's like a well-crafted family drama i have nothing against the ferryman or the concept of a ferryman i i think a well-crafted family drama is important to have Constitution made me very emotional, which doesn't happen in the theater, and that's why I think I, it should win. It is it was a very subjective thing. It is my best play. Well, I mean, all awards are subjective, but do you, but do you now understand why people voted for the ferryman? Oh yeah, I, I understand okay. it, and it doesn't mean like it makes it. The decision makes me happy. Oh yeah, I don't 
it's not. Ha- I'm not happy that the Best Play Award is going to yet again an- another British import, which gives off the impression that Americans don't know how to write plays. We do know how to write plays. It's just like our plays don't fucking get a shit ton of money to be done. <laughs> so now I'm just afraid that it's just going to be like more British imports, as if we don't have enough British imports. It's just going to increase. And the thing about British imports is that they're all workshopped overseas and. They're very, very well funded overseas, and that's why you can have like a fucking how many people is in the ferryman? Like oh god, like two thousand actors. Yeah, two thousand actors and like a shit ton of like goats. That's why you can have that because they have money over there. We don't have money over here, but we have people who can do that. That they're just not funded. So the more the story is, fund American playwrights, especially if they're women or people of color. Especially if they're women, and twelve Alvin McCraney will get a Tony one day. God willing. He already has an Oscar. He already has an Oscar. It's like, is this industry is so weird. I do not understand this industry. He should have been, he should have been on Broadway for the brother sister plays. I, I'd have no idea how he has not been on Broadway yet. I'm, I'm just, ah. okay. All right, then we're almost at an hour. So thank you all for listening. Let us know what you thought of the Tonys. And if you think something else should have won, or if you're happy that your favorites won, let us know. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us because it helps people find us. And it helps our publisher know to not cancel us. Uh, what else? Oh, and if you want to watch our, our interview with Jamani Williams in his very cool office in City Hall, please look up Token Theater Friends on YouTube. Uh, do you want to say anything else to the people? Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. Wear your best glitter for the parades. And sunscreen. All right. And remember, theater is more fun when you take a friend. Bye.